millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Has doing the, you know, even in the bath time kind of interviews has that changed the way it feels to be on the other side of this um i mean yeah i think that the the bath time thing has been the only thing keeping me connected to how my life felt before i don't know really if i would have been able to tell that time was passing if i didn't have something to do on wednesdays it was all i felt like a hundred years old i was like i get to talk to a <laughs> person on the internet on the computer today so yeah it's been keeping me sane but as soon as the sun comes out, I think I'm just really reliant on the weather to make me feel positive. It's quite scary how affected I get when it's sunny. It's almost like a like a, I'm on a high and then it gets cloudy and I'm like, oh, why am I even bothering? I guess it is a, a chemical thing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I, I know that my mum does have the same reaction to the weather, but I almost, I don't know, I, I kind of hoped that I wouldn't inherit that um sad tendency but i think i might have <laughs> i mean but yeah whereabouts are you in the world i'm in aberdeen so if you're looking for sun that's probably not the the best mm. place in the world to go and when i'm not in aberdeen i'm in glasgow so between the two of them yeah, i'm wow. not getting much sunlight I, I love glasgow every time i've been there i've considered moving there i really like it it's got that kind of nice vibe where it's a city but quite a small kind of contained city at the same time and feels a little bit communal almost yeah and the the um the art school is great i've heard last time i went i had a friend studying there and we went to some kind of arty student night and there was a woman no a man dressed as a woman eating a raw fish and I thought, yeah, this is my place. I should definitely move here. <laughs> and then I didn't get around to it. That's kind of got culty vibes to it as well. Though. Yeah, for sure. I was like, I'm in. <laughs> if all I need to do is eat a dead fish, I'm sorry. Sign me up. <laughs> you're, uh, you're an Andy Warhol fan as well, right? I mean, I realise I do have his hair. <laughs> so, yeah. I I, I, in terms of his art, I'm not sure I'm completely on board, but I like his whole situation. His whole shtick. How he seems as a person, yeah. I've been reading a couple of his books lately, Popism, and then I got his diaries for oh, wow. Christmas as well. And they kind of touch a little bit upon Interview Magazine, which he started up and did quite a lot through. So I wondered, I thought we could maybe start with a few Andy Warhol questions, see how they go down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time. They're a little, some of them can be a little bit uh, alternative, but we'll see how we go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Showers or baths? Oh, showers all day. Despite the fact that I started the bath time show, I don't actually like baths at all. <laughs> baths are for interviews, showers are for everything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How were you discovered? Oh, I I don't know if I ever was. <laughs> <laughs> and I get that feeling because every time there's an article written about me or a review, it's always it always says that I'm emerging like some kind of bear from a cave. Um but maybe 
I think I, I put a song on SoundCloud when I was 15 or 16 and one of my favourite artists in Bristol found it and I didn't live in Bristol at the time, but he said, you should definitely come to Bristol and play some shows. So I started kind of getting known in, I hate the word organic, but I'm going to have to use it in quite an organic way. I just, I, I was doing shows like once a month in Bristol and doing my exams. So yeah, I guess, I guess SoundCloud and gigs. Quite a natural progression. Mm, yeah. And I liked it that way because it didn't, didn't make me feel like I had to be... I don't know, I didn't have to grow up really fast or decide what I wanted to be really fast. It was like just kind of a monthly dip in the pool and then making an album in the same kind of way, really slowly and whenever I kind of felt like it. So, yeah. Are you always thinking? Yes. And I was listening to a podcast the other day about a woman who doesn't have an internal monologue. She doesn't introspect ever. And I found it baffling and also I was a bit jealous because I feel like if I'm in the shop I'm like I wonder what the woman behind the desk wants to do maybe she does want to do this should I ask her would that be a rude question that kind of just incessant muttering in my brain and I'd quite like to be able to switch that off but it's also helpful I guess I think it's better to have it on all the time than off all the time though a little bit probably yeah I think I'd be more lonely without that voice. You couldn't be a songwriter without it. No, all my songs would be really observational in a boring way. Like, there was a... (laughs) This was this and that was that. Almost like Hemingway without the emotion. Like, the the hill was high and the man was strong and the day was light, but he was feeling dark. That kind of thing. (laughs) How many hotels have you been kicked out of? Zero. And I want to keep it that way. I don't think it's cool to ruin stuff that isn't yours. I was kicked out of an Airbnb once, but only because I, I didn't realise I hadn't booked the amount of time that I was staying in it for. <laughs> and they came home and they were like, why are you still here? You need to leave. I was like, okay, sorry. That wasn't the Can't one in Berlin, numbers. was it? No, that one I wish I could have stayed in forever. It was so great. What's the craziest thing a fan's ever sent you? We'll do one more after this. <laughs> um, I got a parcel of paintings one time and one of them was of a banana standard one of them was I'm assuming a self-portrait of him and the last one was a really delicate nude that looked like me (laughs) (laughs) and I had to just say thank you and not address the fact that I think he might have been drawing me naked from his imagination was there a note strange was there no. anything to kind of contextualise this? No, no, okay. not at all. Um, he also painted me a tote bag, which I do use all the time. But yeah, no explanation, just a, a parcel of art, which, yeah, <laughs> strange and sweet. What is your greatest fear? Jellyfish and octopuses, octopi. Just because it's so weird? Just my, like, it stops me swimming in the sea. I don't I think I could deal with looking down and seeing an octopus below me but in a real sense in like an actual genuine sense probably dying by myself like in in the room by myself i think that's pretty standard i took a dark turn we went from <laughs> Sorry, jellyfish to dying alone <laughs> i think i just got a coffee a coffee down you know when you're like really yeah. up and then suddenly you're like oh <laughs> i'll drink some more are you how many coffees are you on a day yeah today's been a really unhealthy day i just i've just eaten sugar today so I'm expecting at some point to have a bit of a cry, like a like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Just it's all going to leave my system, and I'm going to feel completely dead. Did you not uh, quit coffee and cigarettes for a little while? At one point, I did. I got a really intense bout of tonsillitis, um, and I tend to get sick just before a tour. I think it might be psychosomatic in some way. I just get get so worried about going on tour and getting sick that I get sick. So yeah, I was about to go on tour and realised I got tonsillitis and stopped drinking coffee and smoking. And I felt amazing. And I was drinking loads of water to replace the habit of cigarettes and coffee. And I felt great. And then I kept it up for like 20 days um, and then just slipped back into it. I think it's quite easy if you don't still have a reason to not be doing it just to kind of fall back into that habit. So, yeah. Is this what laundry and jet lag was about? 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, that was that tour. Yeah, I, I was coughing up blood. Man, that's not good. <laughs> it was really not good. And I don't think I told my mum about it because I knew what she'd say. And I think she only knows that it happened because of that song. <laughs> I played it to her and she was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it kind of highlights the fact that each of these songs on this last record you put out, put out all have a very specific story attached to them. At what point does the kind of subject of a song reveal itself to you in the writing process? It's always afterwards. I often will write something and then a couple of months later, the thing that I'm writing about will happen or it will just occur to me that it's already happened and I I didn't process it properly in my head at the time, but the song kind of processed it for me. But there are a couple of songs on the record that I, I purposefully wanted to write about an actual story and have it really narrative-based. Laundry and Jet Lag is one of them and I used to hate my body, but now I just hate you. That one, I knew that I wanted it to kind of be a country song in the sense that the problem's at the beginning and then there's kind of a solution and then like a bitter reflection verse. I like that about country music. It's kind of like a short story. Is that what informed the structure of that song in the sense that you have like three verses before you get to the first chorus? Yeah, it's the only time when I've sat down to write a song and kind of found it so easy to write the lyrics that I can choose what the lyrics are about, if that makes sense. Like often I'll I'll start writing something and there'll be no real conscious decision how to put it together because it will kind of just come out and I kind of have to just follow how it's happening. But for this one, it felt like the the verse melody was obviously there, the chorus melody was there, and I could just fit in whatever I wanted in the gaps. Was that a similar case for the record? Were these the songs that were written first? The two that had the kind of thing centering around? No, they kind of were towards the end of the process. But I didn't sit down and start writing a record. I just released the first record and then immediately was on tour for a few months and kind of collected stories and wrote bits down. And then I guess the trip to Berlin was the first point where I realised I was writing for a reason for the next chapter. But I, I, it, it's a weird thing. I don't know if this is unique to me. It's probably not. But if I sit down and try and make something happen, it doesn't happen. And if I make a conscious decision to write in a certain way or write about a certain thing, it never feels real or genuine. So it, I kind of just have to follow it when it's happening, like grabbing onto the back of a moving bus. Um, <laughs> yeah. Does that make the process yeah. a little frightening when you don't really know where it's going to take you? Oh man, yeah, big time. And it's really frightening when I realise that I rely on chance a lot of the time and then I'll hit a point where I can't write or nothing's coming naturally and I realise I actually have to force myself through that through that process rather than just allowing it to happen otherwise nothing's going to get done and actually on one of the bath time shows I was talking to Sarah from Illuminati Hotties and she was saying that what's he called like a pop guy Charlie Charlie Puth Charlie Puth oh Charlie (laughs) oh I know who you mean yeah, oh, sh- with the with the eyebrow cut. So he was saying that creativity is a bit like running a tap and you have to run out all the dirty water in a tap. I don't know what taps he's using, by the way. <laughs> I just, I've never had this problem with my taps, but he was like, yeah, you just have to run it so that all the dirty water's out and then eventually the clear water will start running. And I guess that is something to bear in mind when when I hit a wall because nothing's nothing great is just going to arrive after three months of not doing anything. But at the same time, it's soul-destroying to be writing crap song after crap song and hoping at some point you hit gold or clean water, in Charlie Puth's case. So when you when you start hitting gold, are you in quite a low place kind of mentally as a result of those three months wearing you down with nothing that's really working? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've had a really hard time this last year with writing and I think it's almost... 100% to do with the heavy feeling in the entire world and the fact that there's nothing outside my life, outside my immediate kind of existing life to be drawing inspiration from. Um, but two nights ago, I sat down to write in the way that I started to write 
So when I was like 15, I would have nothing else to do other than sit in the back garden and play guitar and do that for like four hours without any distraction, without listening to songs to inspire me or reading anything or going my phone or anything. And I got a full song out of it in an evening and I felt amazing. <laughs> and it kind of, yeah, it felt like I'd, I'd been like digging a huge hole and eventually found the thing that I was looking for. And it just made the whole year of feeling like I can't do what I'm meant to be doing worth it. So I think that that's the only reason that I continue to do this for those moments when it feels like everything makes sense and it's all been for a, for a good cause. But yeah, I've heard about some people like having like three years where they don't write anything and I don't know how that, um, how you get out of that because it does make you feel, it's a bit like not being able to get a boner for years <laughs> and then you kind of decide that maybe sex isn't for you and you should just do something else with your time. Um, saying this from the perspective of someone who's never had that problem also like stay in your lane but yeah it can be soul destroying um, i was speaking to ed nash from bombay bicycle club a few months back and i think he said he almost went two years without writing a good song but he was still going in every day to write into his little workspace wow wow i wonder what was coming out in that time like it's like limericks <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you do with the dirty water for to kind of continue with that metaphor, the stuff that isn't worth using? What happens to that? I never really pursue a song if I don't feel like it's going to be a good one. But I don't throw away the the workings, like the sketches. So I have a folder in my computer of just little bits of songs that I gave up on. And then I can repurpose them if I have a song that's going well, but it's missing a chorus or the middle eight doesn't feel right or whatever, I can just kind of go to that folder of songs I gave up on and use the bits in different tracks. Yeah, it's kind of collage in a way. At what point does something distinguish itself as a chorus or a verse or a bridge or a middle eight? Is that to do with the melody or at what point is it a, a collection of lyrics kind of take that shape and that structure? I am mainly driven by melody and that's the thing I gravitate towards when I listen to music. Gra uh, gravitate towards, yeah, melody and a voice. So in terms of lyrics, I mean, those are the most changeable thing to me. If I have a really decent melody, but the lyrics seem wrong, lyrics come really easily to me so I can just change those. It's not hugely important. So yeah, if I'm, if I'm missing a chorus, I'll go through and listen to purely the melody and try and match that in. And I think, I, I mean, I started writing music on piano, just instrumental piano music. And I realised recently that I feel like I look at songwriting a bit like playing piano, where my left hand is the guitar, kind of like the bass, the bass notes, and my voice is the right hand. So after I realised that that's the way that I approach songwriting, now I have a piano in my house, so I can kind of play it through, play whatever I have through instrumentally on a piano, and it helps me inform my vocal melody and then yeah words are the easy bit you got the when did you get the piano a few months back or yeah middle of lockdown were you able to write on it straight away did it kind of change the process quickly or did it take a little bit of time to get accustomed to it kind of came back i mean the way i was taught wasn't here's some sheet music learn how to play it my piano teacher was very cool and very laid back and encouraged me to play things from ear from ear, by ear. Um, so, yeah, it's always felt like the, the most natural instrument for me. Um, and something I can just noodle on. It's not like guitar. I find it more difficult to just, um, <laughs> for lack of a better word, jam on a guitar. I don't have the technical knowledge and I never had lessons. It was kind of just a tool for me to be able to sing on stage without having to take a keyboard around and sit down. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of just, it, it happens pretty quickly. When you sit down at the piano and just kind of have a play about, are there certain things that you feel yourself drawn to repeatedly? Like in a natural kind of way, just when you sit down and start playing, your hands fall in a certain place or is it different every time? I 
um, realising that the most in instinctive way that I play piano is the kind of music that's played after somebody loses a loved one in like a daytime TV drama. <laughs> that's my kind of <laughs> piano go-to, um, which is so different from guitar because on guitar I'll just like go for like E major um, in 3-4. That's my guitar go-to. So yeah, really kind of sad, <laughs> melancholy, I'm... I might have a terminal illness kind of vibe on piano. Um, yeah. <laughs> why Why do you think that is? And how does that kind of infuse what you're writing on? Maybe because the music I listen to piano-wise, I have a playlist on Spotify that I I put on that's purely piano music and it's I use it for writing to or reading to. So it's purely kind of background music, nothing that's surprising in its structure or its dynamic like quite flat um predictable beautiful melodic stuff so i guess if i'm ingesting that that's what's going to come out yeah kind of more background stuff than anything that's trying to make a point do you always kind of need music on like what you're saying that you'll sit down and draw or read or whatever and have the piano stuff going do you kind of always need something going on in the background if I'm writing something, if, for example, if I've had an argument with somebody or I really need to process something important, I tend to do that without any... Oh, <laughs> sorry, someone just left my house <laughs> loudly. Um, yeah, I tend to do important stuff in silence. But generally speaking, I think it helps to have a reminder of time passing and to me that's important when I'm making something because it kind of it keeps me connected to the world that I'm in rather than going off on a weird mental tangent and then looking back and being like well that's completely useless to me because I was just kind of in a in a strange world that was disconnected from my actual life so yeah it, it helps to have something to kind of ground me what's your perception of time like in the studio to be honest I hate being in the studio I've never liked it I think because of the idea of coming out of it with like something permanent. I have a, a huge problem with committing to stuff generally and studios can be inspiring but they can also instill in you a sense of panic because money's being spent, people are spending their time to help you do your thing and if you don't exactly know what you want to do which is often the case for me it can be really stressful um, having said that I've been I went to Chicago to track this last album and there were a few days when we started doing something at like 9am and by 5 it felt like it was 12 because it had just all gone so quickly and smoothly um, but most of the time I'm I don't know, because I go out for cigarettes a lot, I'm pretty much aware of how quickly time's passing normally because it's like every hour I'll go for a fag, so it'll be, it's kind of, I know where I am in the day. But I would love to find a studio space that that feels like a completely different world unto itself and feels inspiring rather than pressureful. But I haven't found that yet. Is that pressure almost increased by travelling to Chicago? Like, there's no safety net there. You can't go back and just, you know knit back in when it's done if you yeah, want to tweak for something sure. yeah and it was yeah absolutely and I also felt at, not at home and quite out of place when I wasn't in the studio it, was, it wasn't like a okay I'll go and decompress in my own space with my stuff and see a friend and talk about the day it was like I'm here for two months to do a job and I felt like I was always on the job even when I wasn't in the studio and also it was the kind of studio where it opens at a time in the morning and then it shuts so I couldn't just be there overnight tinkering or just playing guitar or whatever it was quite yeah laid out and I had to fit in within that schedule does that tension bleed into what you're making yeah I think it did I brought the stems back from Chicago and realized I didn't like them <laughs> I didn't want to release the record how it sounded when I got it back from Chicago and that's no it's nothing to do with the producer. The producer was brilliant. I took my friend Joe over who played bass and guitar 
all of that was fine. It just the feeling of the tracks and some of the tempos and most of the vocals I just didn't feel connected to. And as a result, I brought them to my friend Ali Chant, who mixed my first record. And I was like, Ali, I don't feel like these it was almost like post postpartum depression, whatever. Like I was like, I know I've made this thing and I should love it, but I just don't. And I don't know why. And I want to, and I need you to help me change the things I don't like and also figure out with me the things I don't like, because this isn't the record I want to release. And I actually think from the versions that we came back from Chicago with and the versions that ended up on the record, there's not an enormous amount of difference in terms of arrangement or production necessarily, but the feeling was completely different. I felt like comfortable with them and I think that that was definitely place place based it's such a delicate thing isn't it I was speaking to someone yesterday and we were talking about how you shift even like a BPM by two beats or one beat and it completely changes how a song feels yeah big time I, I, I really wish that I could remember what I'm about to say now when I'm in a studio set- setting because I feel like if I just sit in a room and play the songs through by myself and remind myself where they came from, because I write everything on my own with a guitar or a piano in my house, mostly in my pants, just so relaxed and feeling like no one's going to ever hear it. If I do that in a studio before we start tracking, before anyone else is there, really, I think it would inform what we record and make it feel more organic and more genuine I should I should make a note of that to myself next time I go into the studio because it, it is always like you act differently when you're with other people than you act on your own and music acts in the same way at least mine does who was it Steve it's Steve Albini's studio right you were over in we did guitars at his studio for a few days but um most of it was done well all of the rest of it was done at uh, a studio called Narwhal which is Brian Deck's studio yeah do you get the fluffy coffee when you were at Albini's? <laughs> the what? The fluffy coffee? Yeah. They don't have like mental coffee there with like tons of honey and stuff in it. Oh man, no. I don't think I don't think I had oh, one. Oh, you're missing out. <laughs> <laughs> Bummer. They did have these boiler suits, um, which you're encouraged to wear when you're working there. How come? I don't know, just I think Albini's got this idea that if everyone's wearing like mechanics outfits, we're all on the same page kind of there's no like hierarchy when everyone's wearing a red boiler suit so yeah sounds like my <laughs> primary school teacher it's the whole thing with <laughs> uniform leader it? yeah exactly <laughs> yeah what did you have going into the studio you had kind of sketches of songs it, right it depended it kind of changed song song to song we did one chunk of recording in chicago and then went on tour and then went back to the uk and then went back out to Chicago so the first time we went out I had probably three quarters of every song down and the last quarter was should there be a middle eight should there be a key change should this be shorter they were like structural changes so when we came back to the UK after the first chunk of recording I had all of these half songs done and sat with them and decided whether I wanted to make those middle eight structure changes or whatever but all the lyrics were there and I actually started before I went into the studio to kind of alleviate that pressure of having just an acoustically written song and then building the production around it to stop that from happening I taught myself how to use GarageBand which (laughs) I'm saying like it's a really hard thing to do it's really not but the way that I made the first record was I just sat in a room, wrote the songs and then laboured for months over what to add to them and whether I even should add anything to them. But for this album, I knew I wanted a band record. I just knew I needed time by myself to figure out the parts and not just leave it up to session players to come in and like do their own drum track or whatever. I knew I needed to kind of plan things out. Um, so I had all these garage band demos to kind of base the songs off and I kind of thought that they would all stay quite similar and some of them did like Alapathy is pretty much the exact same as the as the garage band demo but 
I Nietzsche changed quite a lot. Solipsism changed a lot. And yeah, the first track on the record actually is my garage band demo. So that's quite nice. Felt like I feel like a producer. Maybe I am a producer now. Does that mean I'm a producer? <laughs> I think Pretty so, cool. yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Keep it. <laughs> when when you have that idea that you're gonna go in and we're gonna kind of broaden this out a little bit from the first record in terms of the soundscape. How do you kind of keep a control of perspective and do that whilst ensuring you don't inhibit the initial spark of your kind of personality and your songwriting voice? You don't want to overshadow that. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, I guess, playing with and having people in the studio that you trust implicitly. Joe, my guitarist and bassist, is that person. So I know that if I start straying too far into unknown territory, he will pull me back or remind me how it started, which is really, I think, an essential thing to have if you do feel uncomfortable in the studio, which I always do. Especially if, like for the first album, I was making it in a in my friend's bedroom with my mate. So it was really low pressure and it was almost impossible to lose the identity of the song because we were adding like a sound a day and doing very little to the tracks. But for this album, I wanted them to be bigger. So I needed I needed Joe there to remind me that maybe it didn't have to, maybe everything didn't have to be massive. Um, Brian, my producer, is really into p- percussion. He did a, I think he did a PhD in percussion and he plays xylophone and he was trying <laughs> to put xylophone on, on like a lot of the songs. Um, and I almost, it almost became a xylophone record, but Joe was there to, remind me that I like Modest Mouse so yeah (laughs) but it is scary it's like especially if you're working with people that don't know who you are completely you can show a side of yourself that isn't the side of yourself that wrote the songs so I think the person that writes my songs within me is quite sensitive and delicate and thoughtful and emotional and sometimes the side of me that comes out when I'm around people in a kind of work setting is the opposite of that I want to not run away from the person that wrote those songs but it's a constant battle to get back to that person which of those two people did you feel more like in Berlin the first because I was by myself and I think as a result the song Berlin is to me the best song I've written. I don't know if people agree with that. I don't really care, but yeah, I I felt completely myself because I didn't have any acting to do. And I I think that the acting thing is is a trait that belongs to outgoing introverts because I think if if you meet me you don't think I'm introverted because I do a good job of being social and being outside myself but I think in a creative from a creative standpoint it's useful to go back to that um, introversion because that's where the good stuff is (laughs) it's all inside (laughs) deep inside I guess if we both have you know if we have in ourselves a side to us that's an introvert and a side to us that's an extrovert is the extrovert side what's coming out on the surface level or when you're going deeper with the songs, is that when you kind of get the introverted stuff? Is that where that kind of shines through most in your life? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think maybe that's where the, the kind of running running the dirty water thing comes from. Like the more time you spend diving deeper into your own psyche and your own introspection, that's where there's like a quiet place inside you where all the good stuff is kind of just lurking and all the truthful feelings are buried because if they were all on the surface all the time, you'd be crying at everything. Or at least I would like, I remember there was a a point in when I was in Berlin, I had spent like a solid week without speaking to anybody. And because I don't speak German, I was just going into supermarkets and using the self-checkout. Like I wasn't even speaking to people in shops. I went to a gallery 
on like the seventh day and spoke to somebody for the first time. And then I walked out of the gallery and there was an old man on the corner of a street holding a bag that was see-through and I could see all of his groceries and I burst into tears <laughs> because I'd spent so long by myself really comfortable in this like small space that I'd built and then as soon as I let the world in a tiny bit I felt like that that child inside but in a bigger world and it was terrifying and everything suddenly made me feel way more than it should because I was used to feeling everything and just never having to fully connect with the world that, that I was in, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. And that's why I think lockdown has been probably really challenging for a lot of people because it has been a time of forced introspection and if you're scared of the stuff that's deep, inside um, and you're avoiding it for a reason it's it's inescapable when you've got no world distraction so yeah intense I guess it comes back to control a little bit as well like that world that you had built for yourself in Berlin where you didn't speak to anyone for a week was something that you were completely in control of whereas lockdown is the kind of complete antithesis of that but still occupies a similar space in terms of like you're saying introspection yeah yeah when um when lockdown first happened and I was putting out the record and I was doing interviews, people would be like, so do you think your time alone in Berlin has helped you be alone now? And what tips do you have for people that are now trying to learn how to be alone for the first time? But it is completely different because this is, the, the Berlin time for me was self-imposed loneliness and now it's just, it's accidental and we don't want it. And I think that that's why it was really healthy for me to go and decide to be by myself because often the, the times when we're by ourselves, we're by ourselves because somebody's left us or we're sick or, I don't know, too depressed to have the energy for other people. So that decision to dive into that weird, quiet space is a good practice in recognising your own ability to have an internal dialogue and not need not need the world to help you identify yourself. It's a healthier means of introspection as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, healthy in the sense that it does it won't drive you mad. I think that as a species, we thrive on choice and freedom, and as soon as that freedom's taken away, we get angry. So off the back of going on that big tour before I went to Berlin, I was feeling like my freedom had been taken away in terms of being by myself on tour. I was sleeping in the same room as people. I was in a van with people. I was never by myself, truly. And I felt like that freedom had been taken away from me and I needed to reclaim it. So it's healthy in the sense that I, I saw what I needed to change and I changed it. After you had that period of introspection in Berlin, how did that change your understanding of yourself? and Or did that change your understanding of yourself? And if so, how did that then go on to affect your life afterwards? It gave me a clearer idea of the things I needed and the things that I thought I needed before I went to Berlin. And actually, one of the reasons I did go to Berlin, I, I went to Berlin because I was, I really, <laughs> I, I loved someone who lived far away and we were trying to make it work long distance. And I didn't know this, but the Berlin period was marked the kind of end of this relationship. And he had said, I will be in Germany if you're there. And I was like, oh, that's amazing because I'm actually here writing. So when I arrived in Berlin, I was expecting not to be alone this whole time. I was expecting to be alone for a couple of weeks and then see this person and kind of live this imaginary kind of rom-com life that I had in my brain. And then he just completely blanked me and didn't turn up. So I was forced to elongate that period of aloneness and I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. But I decided, because I'd spent two weeks by myself and I was enjoying having this dialogue with myself that I wanted to keep going with it 
And when I got home, I realized that I don't need people to validate my existence as much as I thought I did. I spent a lot of time when I was a teenager by myself. I didn't have boyfriends. I didn't have friends. My first kind of early relationships were based on me feeling kind of like a secret or like somebody was ashamed to be with me. And I think that that was a weight that I carried for a long time. And then when I got back from Berlin, I felt like that weight had been lifted. I was like, I realize now that actually I do have worth and I'm good to be around because I've just been with myself for a month and I've had a great time. So it was, it was like a lesson in, I hate the, the whole thing about self-love at the moment. I think it's almost too forceful. Oh. <laughs> Did you just hear my Google Home talking to me? <laughs> Sorry, I don't understand. Um, yeah, it was a lesson in like being my own main hang, which I think was a, it came at a good time because I'd just been singing songs that I wrote about heartbreak and I was still kind of, I had a foot in that feeling. It was, yeah, it kind of allowed me to shut the door on that whole period of reliance and seeing myself in the shadow of the person that left me. Did that weight kind of lead to you putting yourself in some unhealthy situations accidentally? The weight of needing someone else to validate me. Yeah, or what you were saying that you felt like, you almost felt like you were in debt to the person who you were seeing, if that makes sense. I don't that's not, that's not yeah, really no, way Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that is a good way of putting it as well. Yeah, I think, I mean... I watched The Perks of Being a Wallflower the other day <laughs> in a low moment. I watched that a few and times in lockdown. <laughs> it's actually genuinely fine as a film. Um, but yeah, there's a bit in it where they're like, you accept the love you think you deserve. And I was doing that and I didn't even think I deserved that. I was taking the the bare minimum that people were willing to offer and seeing that as a luxury or like a... I'm a huge success because it was better than being by myself and it was better than, yeah, it was better than being myself because I thought being by myself meant that nobody wanted me, but actually being by myself was great in Berlin because by the end I realised there is a reason why people would want me. So being by myself is satisfying because I'm enjoying my company and it's it would be enjoyable for someone to also be in my company. I think I'd, I hadn't really realised that yet. And maybe people don't realise that. I think I have friends that are a lot older than me and my parents' friends and people in my family that I think are still carrying that fear that they're not enough for anybody and that people are doing them a favour by being around them. And that's a really insidious feeling and a thought because it's probably not true. There's probably some real shit bags out there that actually aren't great to be around and they should be feeling that. But generally speaking, we're not like sheep that need to be in a pack. We're not, we're not pack animals. We're, yeah, it's just, it's, it's nice to realise that being alone doesn't have to be a lonely feeling. It can just be fine. <laughs> yeah. It comes, I think it's, you've said this a few times as well before that if it's your, it's a choice to be alone, but it's not a choice to be lonely. And if you make that mm. choice, it's a it's a fine thing. Yeah. Yeah. And even sometimes being lonely is fine. Like I have spent lockdown with a partner and it got to a point where I was like, this is great. And obviously I love you and I love being around you. But I'm kind of craving that lonely feeling because I think it brings out a good art in a way, like I know that there's a temptation for musicians or artists to kind of fetishize pain to a degree and be like, I can't make good stuff if I'm not hurting. And I don't agree with that for myself, but I do think being, being alone sometimes does breed loneliness and loneliness leads you to realize good stuff or make good stuff or appreciate stuff that you have not appreciated while you've had someone to share it with. So I don't think, I, I absolutely don't think loneliness is a always a bad thing. And I really, really, really don't think aloneness is a bad thing. It's necessary. 
it is necessary. It's necessary for me. I don't know if it's necessary for everyone. I don't know if if I could make that claim. But do you think you know you were saying that you know some people who are like your parents' age that still have that feeling that they're, or it seems that they maybe still have that feeling that they're maybe not good enough for people. Is that because maybe it's not loneliness? Is it necessary for them, and it's too much of a struggle for them to be alone, and that's why they still carry that? Yeah, I mean, specifically the person I'm thinking of now. They are probably one of those a person similar to the person I mentioned on the podcast that has no introspection. Like maybe they don't have a a particularly rich internal life, and therefore being alone for them is boring, and there's no stimulation because they can't provide that stimulation for themselves. I'm the polar opposite of that. If I'm by myself, I'm making stories about everything I'm seeing to a maddening degree. But yeah, I think some people just aren't wired in the same way where they can find interesting things to mention to themselves within their own head. Have you always had that? Were you like a storyteller before you were a songwriter? Yeah, I've 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 never really kept a diary, which is sad. But I wrote books when I was a kid. I didn't have a a TV growing up which I think gave me a lot of time and gave me the I had a hunger to know like hear stories and be entertained by stories but I didn't have them just beamed to me by a TV so I was yeah I wrote books I wrote poems I painted I I was almost like to a pretentious degree a creative child and apparently I used to stand on tables and go, this is my show and take my clothes off as well. So I was either going to become like an author, a musician or a stripper and maybe there's still time. But yeah, I think I've always just, I've always, always made stories about other people's lives as well. And I realise my mum does the same thing. Like if we're in the car together and we see a strange couple, we'll be like, do you reckon he's just come out of prison? And she's maybe, I don't know struggling with losing a loved one and that's why they're holding each other that tightly and like maybe he's a fireman and he's like doesn't have eyebrows because he was just in a he just rescued some child from a mansion like this constant like making little fun lies about stuff that really doesn't need to be thought about that much I think that is ingrained in me and my dad doesn't do the same thing and sometimes I'll see my mum and dad together and he'll be looking tired and I know it's because my mum's just been like, what about this? Do you think this is this? Blah, 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 blah. Do you think she's doing that? Yeah, it's always been there and yeah, it's, it keeps me occupied. <laughs> I imagine it makes you a better person as well because it would, would it not like breed empathy if you were able to relate to everyone in that way and make them a real person and not just have them be like an object that you're passing by in the street? Yeah, I think, I hope so. But I also think maybe it, because <laughs> I'll sometimes I'll make like negative stories about people. Like, for example, my my boyfriend has this too, where he'll be at work and he'll look at his coworker and be like, "Imagine if Bob just walked up to me right now and said, fuck you." I'd hate that. God, Bob is such a dick. And then Bob will walk past and he'll be like, fuck you, Bob. Like, this kind of, it can go one of two ways. You can be like, oh, I feel for you. Or like, man, you're an arsehole without actually knowing anything about that person. So sometimes it has to be reined in. But yeah, I think if there was more introspection, then that does breed empathy. And we'd all probably be nicer to one another if we all thought, as hard about each other as I think about <laughs> everybody <laughs> all the time. Maybe, yeah, maybe it does make me a better person. Could you get a little bit exhausting though too? Yeah, so tiring. I, I've i stopped writing down my dreams as well because there's no point because <laughs> it's all just, yeah, it's all happening all the time. Are you a big dreamer? I have vivid dreams always, especially when I've been absorbing a lot of stuff that day obviously like if I I don't really watch movies that often but if I do watch a movie it's normally something recommended to me by one particular friend who will feed me the most intense kind of cerebral head fuck films and I'll have incredibly stressful dreams after that um 
And I started smoking weed because I didn't want to dream as much. And I I heard that it stops you dreaming. So it's almost like smoking to switch off my brain, which is not like not the normal reason why people do it, I think. But um, does that work? It, it does work. I mean, it depends what you smoke, but generally speaking, I don't dream if I've smoked. And actually smoking is has been a really useful tool for me in terms of writing to switch on and switch off. Um, and I've learned what to smoke to do both those things. That's interesting. So if you smoke different strains, does that have a different impact upon your kind of writing process? Yeah. And if I eat it, it doesn't really tend to affect me in my mind. Um, but actually the best thing about going to LA, I hated LA so much and I was there for a week <laughs> and I just don't care about like coffee enemas or yoga or like kale but the great thing about LA was they have a shop called Medmen where it's like the apple store of weed and you can go in and be like I want to have a three hour writing session and I don't want to feel sleepy or paranoid what can you recommend and they'll kind of tailor your strain to what you want to feel which is such a good way of looking at weed it's so better so much better than here where it's like you just buy a 10 bag from some sketchy dude in a hoodie <laughs> and it might be asbestos it's it's um more of a risk here can you see it changing yeah. can i see it changing not no with the this Tories, government. yeah i suppose yeah yeah not at all um I'm f i've been watching this incredible french show called family business and the premise of it is in France, there's just about to be a law passed that legalizes the growing and selling of weed. And this family get wind of this new law and go into the weed business. It's really good. I recommend it highly. But yeah, it would just be an absolute dream because, yeah, you'd you'd finally know what you were what you were smoking. Imagine if tobacco was illegal and you didn't know what you were smoking tobacco wise or even like milk or whatever. Like it's such a scary thing to be taking something into your body and you have no idea where it's come from. It's an interesting thing, like, I remember hearing the way that we kind of structure it in this country is so bizarre, because things tend to be legalised, are legalised rather, based on their impact to other people. Like, if you take a certain substance and it's going to make you go crazy and you might hurt someone else, that's why it's illegal, not because of the effect it has on your body. And if you compare the effect that weed and alcohol have on each other, or would have on other people, the effect that you get from alcohol in terms of social disturbance is so many more times what you would get from smoking weed yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent it's i this is probably too stonery and like i'm proving the point that i'm like i'm going against the point i'm trying to prove by saying it but like i genuinely believe that it's still illegal because it has the ability to free <laughs> free your mind <laughs> like it 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 lets you think in a completely different way. And I don't know what came first, the idea of potheads as being anarchists or whatever, like what came first, like anti-government people or people smoking weed and like which one breeds the other. But I, I don't know, like the most radical feelings I've had about myself and the things around me have come from not being in my sober boxed in brain so i don't know this is this is all going a bit to <laughs> look making me look like a nutter let's not even get um, started on psychedelics the, <laughs> yeah. oh god yeah yeah to, to come back to what you were saying a little maybe 10 minutes ago or so about what you'll do when you see someone else and you might come up with a story for them on the record you have elliot which is written about some other people's experiences. Obviously, you're still relating it to yourself, but written about some other people's stories. Is that a different thing for you in terms of the way I approach it when you're trying to incorporate someone else's yeah, story into a song? That one was a strange one. That I wrote that song after... A lot of people think it's about Elliot Smith. It's not. He's the man. It's, <laughs> he's the dude. <laughs> but I would never write a song about someone that uh, high up in in the hierarchy. Yeah. I think that would be scary territory. But yeah, I wrote that after going to a hardware store run by a guy who used to be in a really big band 
and he was talking to me about kind of getting really deep into bad drugs and a bad crowd and realizing that in order to be happy and stay alive, he needed to leave that world and kind of strike out by himself and forge a completely different path. And I was thinking about that a lot and then thinking about kind of inherited pain from my dad and from my mum and from my extended family and the fact that I think I feel a lot of things, I feel a lot of the fears I feel, not because of my experiences, but because of my, the experiences of the people that raised me. Um, so as much as that song is about, it is about my dad and that that guy, Elliot, in the hardware store, it's almost through a selfish lens of like, how do these people's things relate to my things? It's like, kind of like, I'm, I'm parasitically thinking about my own stuff through their stuff, kind of vicariously living through them. But it is, it's, it's kind of scary writing about other people because I didn't, as much as I write about relationships and people that have hurt me, it doesn't really matter what they think about that. Like they've, they've, they've come and they've gone and I'm kind of through their absence given the permission to say whatever I want about them. But with my dad and this dude, they haven't done anything bad to me. So I really, there's a kind of abstract pressure to keep it above the belt. Like don't, don't ruin someone else's story by telling it in the wrong way. So that's kind of, it's, uh, it's freeing, but it's scary. Yeah, it's delicate, like we were saying earlier as well. Yeah, big time. And I, I really, I feel so satisfied by that song and it's made me start writing more songs about things that aren't necessarily completely related to me because as much as I can get a good story out of my own stuff because I know every side of it, it's also quite hard to tell a story from your own life because you can see every side of it. Do you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah almost easier to, not easier, but like a different, using a different muscle to translate someone else's shit in, in words that feel close to yourself. Can, does it almost enable you to appreciate your own art? Art? Yeah, I think I'm an absolute genius when I write about other people. <laughs> <laughs> Pat on the back. No, um, yeah, I think it, it's almost like, if I'm writing about a feeling I have, it's like tracing. But if I'm writing about someone else's stuff, it's like freehand. It's almost like drawing from a photo or drawing from life. The photo being my own stuff, because it's so close to me that nothing I do can be wrong. And it's easy because it's right there and it's really accessible. But writing about someone else's stuff, it's more fuzzy and therefore more satisfying when you kind of feel like you've drawn a picture that's accurate and also emotional and people can connect with it and you can connect with it yourself. I like that analogy, the tracing and the, the free form. <laughs> <laughs> I guess as well, if you're writing about your own story, there can be a lot of negative emotions wrapped up in that, no matter how good a song you write from it. Like if you're writing about that um, Nietzsche fella, Hmm. you're still going to have negative emotions associated with that no matter how good the song is. Yes. Yeah, big time. I have a very low version, I think, of PTSD when I sing songs or hear songs from the first record and even some of the ones from the second record. Hence why I didn't want to put... I released two songs as singles before I put this second album out because I didn't want them on the album. I didn't want the person that they were about to have anything to do with this record because they make me feel so crap still. And I can't fully love those songs because they're about a time that I really hate and I really want to forget. And I almost kick myself for writing about that time because it's just a constant reminder of that feeling of being with the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. You get that feeling in the songs too. There's a little bit more anger about them to a certain degree. Yeah, which is completely not my... I mean, that's kind of my go-to feeling when it comes to trauma in day-to-day -day life. 
but when I like what I was saying about being in touch with that more kind of delicate emotional introspective version of myself when I write songs I feel like that was lost in those angry tracks because I was almost trying to prove resilience um whereas I think actually quiet songs and speaking at a normal volume can have more weight and strength than shouting about it so for that reason yeah I wanted to leave them off the album but yeah there's definitely I mean whatever you're writing about the feeling will be there in that song so when I listen to Elliot I feel an enormous amount of love and respect for my dad and when I hear I Nietzsche I am thrown back to being with that guy that I was with and feeling fury and fear so the, whatever you're writing about is always going to f- the weight of that situation or that person is going to stay within the song can it um, bring closure to that experience can you wrap it up with the song absolutely and yeah I, I feel like I used to say when I was like when I was starting out that writing songs was a bit like therapy that was before I went to therapy but actually, I I used to hate my body, but now I just hate you. That song, as soon as I wrote it, because it's such a clear circle, there's such a cyclical story-like feeling to it, that I was like, oh shit, I can shut that book. Like, that's done. I, can, I figured it out in five verses or whatever. And now I feel nothing but kind of middle finger power about that time like I I don't have to feel like a victim anymore because I wrote a song in a in a character that doesn't care so now I kind of don't care does that make sense it's like yeah that's a lovely note to wrap us up on I think (laughs) should we have I really enjoyed this thank you so much no thank you should we have another couple from Mr Warhol before we go absolutely (laughs) (laughs) who's the nicest person you've ever worked for Piers and Steph I uh, worked in a record store and I was 16 they were so great and introduced me to music in general yeah they were so so cool do you get your eight hours a night dude i sleep for like 14 hours easily (laughs) (laughs) it's really scary is that because of the weed it's (laughs) it's because of the weed and because there's nothing to do yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i love these why can't it be magic all the time but it can be can be for the most part, yeah. Yeah, I think I, it can't be anything all the time. Like today, I've only eaten sugar. Ideally, that's like in theory great. Um, in practice, I feel really sick. So, yeah. Is there anything you regret? <laughs> Not carrying on with piano lessons. That wor- worked itself out, though. Yeah, I mean, it all worked out in the end, didn't it? I also regret one of my tattoos, but I mean, it can be covered. So which one? You got two done in one day at one point, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I go through phases of being like, "Cover me up." <laughs> I have one on my elbow that's meant to be a seagull because I read Jonathan Livingston Seagull. I don't know if you've read that. I've um, not. What's it about? It's kind of like a childish allegory about individuality and self better bettering. Is that a word? Um, it's really short. It's like a. It's by a guy called John Back and it's almost like Buddhist in its message but I read it and I was like immediately like I need to have this <laughs> I need to have this on my body so I remember to read this more <laughs> because it's really helping me so I got a bird on my elbow but it looks like fucking California it's so shit it looks <laughs> like when I got it I was like I love this tattoo and then I went to the States and people were like how long have you lived here I love your tattoo <laughs> It's, it's yeah it needs to be covered but I kind of like it it's, it's shit in a good way yeah it's tied to a nice memory yeah have you read The Peregrine no what's that check that out it's pretty good it's I don't know how we describe it it's about this guy in the Peak District I think basically mm. following Peregrines about and it's almost like the most possibly the most peaceful book I've read just like written in such beautiful language and just kind of articulating someone's passion to following birds a bit it's good though oh lush I've written on my hand <laughs> yeah I'm trying to read more books that are freeing and chill I went through a bit of a period of reading really intense books I read The Handmaid's Tale and I was like oh, why am I doing this to myself 
It's like self-flagellation. <laughs> <laughs> right, last one from, from Mr. Warhol. Mr. Oh, shit. <laughs> last Have one. you heard that Bowie, the beginning of that Bowie song where he's like, Andy Warhol, take one. And Bowie's like, it's Warhol. <laughs> and the producer's like, what did I say? And he's like, Warhol, it's Warhol. What song's that? Um, I think it's called Andy Warhol. Oh, it's this like is Andy on one of Warhol. this is on one of the early records, the same one that's got Bob Dylan on it, isn't it? I think. I, I think it might be on Hunky Dory. No, it's not. I'm not sure. I have it on on record, and I play it double speed. It sounds hysterical. <laughs> Should try it. Maddening. <laughs> I want to live forever. Do you? Hell no. I can't even imagine myself as a forty year old. Um, no, I wouldn't want to live forever. Although, out of curiosity, maybe to see what happens. Imagine the wisdom you would get. Yeah, or the boredom. Like, there's only so much introspection that you can do as a person. I think if I could live forever as different iterations of a person, then I would do that. But I think I'd drive myself mad if I was if I was with myself forever. Yeah. That's, that's crazy talk. That's one of the annoying things about life, is that your perception of it is so kind of tunnel vision and through your gaze you're never going to be able to see it from someone else's point of view yeah which is why i think it's so important to have different chapters to your life like don't try and be a musician forever there's nothing sadder than seeing like a 60 year old doing an open mic and they've been doing it for 25 years like just move on to something else be a fireman do something else i'm gonna be uh a taxi driver at some point just to collect stories i think that would be really fun that make a good book yeah for sure <laughs> I could call it taxi driver and then get sued. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.